If you would like more information about Jubilee Church, please visit our website at jubileestl.org. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite and native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men arose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened, and Peter said to her, "'Tell me whether you sold the land for so much.' And she said, "'Yes, for so much.' But Peter said to her, "'How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out.' And immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. This is the word of the Lord. So good to be with you all again this morning. Uh, You'll have to forgive me. I'm getting over a bit of a cold. Um, But uh, as Dylan mentioned, my name is Greg, and I am... um, the sort of newly minted elder here in the city location. Uh, and I only bring that up because I must have drawn the short straw because I get to preach these kinds of texts to you. And, uh, but that's all right because we believe that all of God's word is God-breathed and is, um, useful for teaching and instruction. Um, David Platt is a pastor and author, an American pastor and author, wrote a book in 2010 called Radical. In the book, he tells the story of a young man named Rodan, who is from Indonesia. He's actually an Indonesian seminary student, and he's selected by his peers to speak at graduation. So at graduation, he is telling the class and all everyone who's assembled about uh, the outcome of his senior capstone project. Now, what was his assignment? His assignment was to go into a rural village in Indonesia and to plant a church of at least 30 converts to Christianity. Now, it's a pretty simple assignment. Actually, either you planted a church and you have 30 believers, or you didn't. It's pass-fail. No problem. But simple doesn't mean easy. And so he tells a story about how this all came about. He, one day, he was there visiting a young family of believers, and uh, while he was visiting them in their 
grass hut. A message comes at the door, knock, knock, knock. Um, oh man, the, the local shaman is here and he is, he is, oh, he is angry. He, he, he wants you to come out here. He wants to fight you. Okay, seems kind of a strange situation, but if you think about how things work in a rural village in Indonesia, the shaman or the witch doctor is the local protector and defender of culture and religion. And well, here's this guy from the city coming in messing with my stuff, you know, on my turf, trying to like change things around. So not too surprising that the shaman has something to say about this. Now, Radan in his pre-Christian years, just happened to have studied several different types of martial arts, jujitsu and uh, whatnot. And was while he was considering which MMA chokehold to put this old guy in, uh, he says that he was stopped, uh, stopped by a still small voice. And the voice told him, the battle is the Lord's. He said, oh, okay, well, I guess God can fight his own battles. I better just chill out for a minute. So he takes a stool from inside the hut, steps outside to find the shaman who is there working himself up into a frenzy, calling on the ancestral deities and the spirits of forefathers to give him supernatural power for the battle. Radan sits down on a stool and waits. And the shaman who is making a big fuss and shouting and screaming suddenly is speechless, then suddenly breathless then suddenly choking, and then suddenly dead. So I tell this story because the temptation when we read Acts chapter 5 about Ananias and Sapphira dropping dead in front of the apostles is to assume that it's the story from a bygone era where crazy supernatural things happened to people who oppose God, but they don't really happen anymore. Well, the end of the story is this. Radon uh, didn't do anything, as you heard, But great fear came upon the entire village and many people came to faith in Jesus Christ that day and Radon completed his assignment (laughs) with flying colors. So let's look together at Acts chapter four and chapter five. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And his concern about his church and his position with regards to sin and lies and hypocrisy are no different today than they were 2,000 years ago. At the end of chapter four, Luke presents the church to us. This is a church, a covenant community, a group of people who have been filled with God's Holy Spirit, the, the fulfillment of centuries of prophecy about what God would do at the coming age. And they are gathering together, living a simply unbelievable kind of life. They're preemptively liquidating their assets in order to provide for each other's needs. Now, mind you, this isn't a socialist commune where signing away all of your possessions is a right of entry. No, rather, the ownership of property is widespread. It says as many of them as had fields and homes sold. So every people own things, even though they've been in the church. Now, the occasion for the communal pooling of resources is not the command of the apostles, And it's not the um, bylaws of the community, but rather the realization that there were unmet needs, unmet physical needs in our family. The Bible uh, in this story is not promoting socialism or communism where a central authority owns all the wealth and controls all of the belongings, but rather it is an example of 
spirit-motivated generosity, the spontaneous liquidation of excess so that everyone can have what they need. Now, as a parent with children, this makes sense to me. If my child is sick and needs surgery, I wouldn't hesitate to sell my car or uh, to sell my furniture to pay for this procedure. And if my sister called me tomorrow to say a hurricane had hit her home in Orlando, I wouldn't hesitate to sell an extra field to put her family under a warm roof and to give her child a place to sleep. Why? Because I love these people. Our familial bond is strong. And so it should be amongst God's people because we haven't just been saved. We've been brought into a family. So Luke, the author of Acts here, he intentionally places two stories together, Barnabas and Ananias and Sapphira. Barnabas's action, selling a field and setting the proceeds at the feet of the apostles for them to dispense at their discretion is commended as representative of the fruit of the Holy Spirit working amongst God's people. Ananias and Sapphira, on the other hand, are branches of the vine with no fruit, pruned by the gardener, God, and thrown into the fire. But what crime did they commit? I mean, what, what did they do that was so heinous that it was deserving of immediate execution, public execution by the Spirit of God? Well, there are three things. They lied to the Holy Spirit. They sought the praise of men rather than God. And they threatened the covenant community. They threatened to poison the grace of God at work in his church. So first, they lied to the Holy Spirit. Peter's indictment of Ananias makes it clear that the lie is his problem. But what the lie is is not totally obvious, not immediately obvious. It becomes clear when his wife arrives. So Sapphira arrives three hours later, isn't aware that her husband has died, and Peter asks her the question, is this the full sum of the money that you, for which you sold this field? And she says, yes, it is. And he says, why have you agreed together to test the spirit? The crime is not keeping back a portion of the money, but pretending that the amount given was the full amount. Inherent in this lie, as in every lie, is a misunderstanding of the nature of God as holy. Let's think about that word, holy. It means that God is perfect, morally upright, but not just lacking problems, not just without flaws. In fact, we understand that God is the source of every good thing, the very fountain from which all virtue flows and issues forth in the world. That truth comes from God and that God is truth. And so falsehood is the antithesis of his character. He cannot endure a lie. And he will not allow a lie to infiltrate his covenant community, his representatives on the earth. Now, you add to this God's omniscience, right? That is his perfect knowledge of all things. Well, it starts to seem pretty silly to even approach God under false pretenses. Just listen to how the Bible describes the extent of God's knowledge of the secret things of the heart. 1 Kings 8.39 says this, Render to each according to all his ways, whose heart you know, 
for you alone know the hearts of all the sons of men. Or Psalm 44, 21. It's clear that Ananias and Sapphira didn't read the Psalms. Would not God find this out? For he knows the secrets of the heart. Unfortunately for Ananias and Sapphira, they either forgot or ignored these truths. The second, they sought the praise of men rather than God. Ananias and Sapphira are motivated to build their own brand through this lie rather than building God's brand. Their motivation, while never plainly stated, I think becomes very clear when we think about how Luke is writing this. He specifically puts this story about Ananias and Sapphira next to the story of Barnabas. So let's look at Barnabas. Named Joseph, but renamed Barnabas, or son of encouragement by the community. He is legendarily generous. I mean, this is, this is pretty impressive. People have said a lot of nice things about me and my life, but no one has ever given me a nickname to celebrate my greatness. All right? No, we're not going to call you Greg anymore. We're going to give you this great name. See, but Barnabas's generosity really is exemplary. And as we keep reading in the book of Acts, we'll find that this is just the beginning for Barnabas. Actually, Barnabas um, becomes a central figure as God's work is happening through the church. Jesus Christ, when he left, he gave this commission and he says, guys, go into all the world, make disciples, uh, preaching them, teaching them in Jerusalem, uh, Judea, sort of Samaria, sort of other areas, and then to the ends of the earth. And Barnabas is central to this move of God where the church and the gospel start to spread outside of this region to the ends of the earth. Barnabas is asked to go to the church in Antioch and he takes over the church there. He realizes they have some serious needs and he actually recruits Paul. Paul is sort of like, um, you're riding away in some backwater town of Tarsus doing a whole lot of, probably studying the Bible, but not working in the mission of God. And Barnabas recognizes he has a gift and that they need that gift. And he brings Paul in. And so, well, if you've read the New Testament, you understand that two thirds of it is written by this guy, Paul. Why? Because Barnabas took a chance on him and brought him into the mission. And so Barnabas is a central figure. Now, no doubt, Ananias and Sapphira have observed the community's embrace of Barnabas. And they're thinking to themselves, I mean, oh, that's what it takes to get special uh, special treatment or special recognition. We could do that. We could sell a field and give some money. But they've considered a wicked scheme. They want to be highly esteemed and well-respected in the community. Okay, everybody probably does. But they're undoubtedly motivated by a desire to appear like Barnabas, to appear generous. The problem is that their hypocrisy is the complete opposite of Barnabas. Because Barnabas acts of genuine love, motivated by the Spirit. Invariably, a love of our own reputation can lead, will lead to this kind of behavior. We, when we long for the praise of men, but not from God, we sell ourselves into the service of our reputation, usually, usually at the expense of our honesty and our integrity. You see, because if you have a blemish, if you have a mark, you have to cover it. If it's scuffed up, you have to buff it and shine it. If you spend any time on social media, I'm sure you probably understand this. You've likely felt the pull, the pressure of personal brand management. That's the phrase they use these days. I mean, how many Snapchat pages are filled with photos taken with just the right preset filter? 
so that everyday people can masquerade as fashion models. You know, but where are the pictures of us at our worst? When we have the flu, red nose and snot draining down the face. Right? Right after we've, oh, fender bender, it's my fault. Feeling sheepish. I can't, uh, uh. it's not like, fender bender. Right? When we're crying hysterically after a terrible breakup, after we lose our job. I've never seen a Facebook post about, I missed the game-winning shot. <laughs> I failed the exam. I didn't, I didn't graduate. <laughs> but these things happen too. That's the stuff of life. We don't promote our failures. We exaggerate our accomplishments. The incessant pressure to present ourselves as better than we really are is a deadly root of hypocrisy. Well, sadly, here's something else that is a necessary prerequisite for hypocrisy. Ananias and Sapphira forgot the gospel. See, if you're new to Jubilee or to Christianity in general, maybe you've never heard the gospel of God's great grace. The central message of the Bible is this, that we, you, I, everyone here, we are deeply flawed, broken, but not just broken, not just infected, but rebellious, enemies of God, in opposition to him. But that's not what God intended for us. That's not what he wants for us. So he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to live the life we should have lived, die the death that we deserved, and to be resurrected into a new life, the kind of life that we can now have access to. But only if, only if we are willing to abandon our attempts to make ourselves better. You see, the gospel says that through faith in what Jesus Christ has already done, we can be accepted by God and actually experience God making us better. Not just endless hours spent on managing my own brand, but God coming in and putting his name on the building. God is making us better than we could ever be through our own efforts. Ananias and Sapphira, they lost sight of what this gospel says about them, that in their own power, they can never please God, could never impress God. And, and this is the saddest part. The gospel says they didn't have to try. The gospel was trying to free them from the pressure to do it on their own. But they were intoxicated by the, the idea of being well-liked, well-thought-of and they abandoned the gospel. They either believed that giving this money was a good thing that would prove that they were something special, or they thought that they could convince others that they were better than they were through their actions. I want to share a verse with you. This is my favorite verse, probably my life verse, if I've got a life verse. And it just so happens to be the antidote to hypocrisy. This is Galatians chapter 6, verses 7 and 8. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he will also reap. For the one who sows to his flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. God cannot be deceived. You cannot make a mockery of his perfect knowledge. If you lie to him, he already knows it. He knew it before you even thought of it. And if you think that God doesn't care or that no one will find out, rest assured 
The scriptures promise us today when every hidden thought and every hidden action will be revealed. Every person, the deeds of every person will be exposed. Ananias and Sapphira, they thought they could present themselves to the apostles as compassionately generous, motivated by a real concern for the community while secretly serving their own reputation. And in so doing, they sowed the seeds of corruption into their own hearts, indulging their own pride, their lust for recognition. And from their lie, they reaped a harvest of God's judgment. They lied to the Holy Spirit. They sought the praise of men and not from God. And third, their lack of integrity threatened the church. Let's look at verse four, chapter four, verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace was upon them all. Underline that. Great grace was upon them all. Does this sound like a normal group of people? No, but the church isn't normal. The church is supernatural. This church is enjoying the supernatural fruit of God's supernatural spirit, knitting them together in supernatural unity. This level of unity could never be achieved without radical honesty, transparency, trustworthiness, vulnerability, and God's great grace. Because you can't be any of those things without grace. It's too painful. But God's grace is the glue knitting these broken people together. Now, conniving schemes of one-upmanship and it's lethal. That's a lethal injection to a community like this. Can you imagine being in a community like this? You're all supposed to say, yes, we're here. It's Jubilee. <laughs> I mean, I certainly hope that you have at least tasted something of this in your time with us. But more importantly, can you imagine being in a community like this with a guy like Ananias? Now, I'll tell you what. I went to high school with this kid. I'm sure you probably all did, right? This is the guy who's always talking himself up, putting others down, constantly taking credit for things that he did or maybe didn't do, looking for his own gain in every situation. How can I put myself in the best light and how can I maneuver and how can I work this situation to look a little better than the next guy? Loves the limelight. If you can't remember a kid like that from high school, newsflash, it's probably you. That's okay. But you can't have an authentic, Christ-honoring community with someone like that. They're so obsessed with their own reputation that they will destroy others to get what they're looking for. People like Ananias and Sapphira are an existential threat to a community that exists to make much of Jesus, to enthrone Jesus and not men because they're constantly at work to get the fame for themselves. In fact, let's look at what Jesus has to say about those who like to put on a religious show. He reserves his harshest criticism for the religious leaders of his day. 
People who incorrectly see themselves as accepted by God because of their morality and people who cover up their shortcomings with religious activities. Both are deadly forms of hypocrisy. Let's just take a listen. So this is from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 23. Actually, can you guys do me a favor? This is gonna be crazy, but I did this last time. I often read the words of Jesus and I try to imagine what would it have been like, really been like to be there present while he was speaking. So Jesus speaks in a day and age where he's speaking to large crowds bigger than this, but without the assistance of a microphone. So would you mute my microphone? Personally, I think Ananias believed that selling the field was a good thing. Something he could do that could prove that he was really something spiritually. A way to prove or show his morality. But once he had the cash in hand, well, it's hard to part with it. So rather than admitting that it was tough to be, hard to be generous, being honest, what does he do? He puts this lie on top of his legalistic action. He says, well, I mean, just don't tell him how much money it was. We'll just, lie. We'll just tell him it's all the money. We'll keep some of it. It's fine. It's no big deal. That way, he could do his good deed. He could prove himself before God. He could keep the extra money, and he could look really spiritual to the community. That sounds just like Matthew 23, 28. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. And if that weren't enough, let's consider Peter's analysis of the situation. Ananias why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? You have not lied to man, but to God. Who is really behind this threat? Is it simply Ananias and his wife making a bad decision? No. They are named as accomplices to Satan. Ananias and Sapphira are under the influence of the trifecta of temptations. Pride, greed, and deceit. We can be proud and we can be greedy and we can cover it up. And their lie threatens to undo the work of the Holy Spirit knitting the church together. Have you ever considered, I mean, honestly considered, that your personal sin is viewed by Jesus as a threat against his bride, the church? Or, could it, or that it could be aiding Satan to undermine God's work in the world? That's what the text says. If you've ever read Dietrich Bonhoeffer's book, uh, Life Together, he actually draws out this theme. He talks about how our spiritual lives, when we're apart, directly influence the spiritual life of the community when we're together. That the things that we do when we're apart, we bring with us. So that any, if, we, if, we, if we live for ourselves and we sow to the flesh when we're apart, that we're robbing ourselves and our community of some, some encouragement from God, some, some knowledge or understanding from the scripture, some great um, um, comfort that the Holy Spirit could have brought to us had we been seeking God instead of seeking ourselves. But there you have it. A little white lie. A victimless crime, right? Unless you're Ananias. In which case you are your own victim a victim of your suicidal lust for the praise of men, for self-justification, drinking your own self-administered poison. 
the poison of hypocrisy. That's at least one reason why we should guard against hypocrisy. It's based on lies, and Satan is the father of lies and has been a liar from the beginning. And then to perpetrate a lie or perpetuate a lie is to aid the enemy in imposing the God of truth. A second reason we should guard against hypocrisy is that it is insidious. It can creep in little by little without warning and grab a hold of our lives. Okay, confession time. Most of you already know that in my day job, I'm a doctor. You wanna know something? There is one characteristic in a patient that makes every doctor I know shake his head. Nurses too. All right, it's not because we don't like you. All right, don't get me wrong, all right? It's, it's that as soon as we identify this characteristic, we know that we are in for an uphill battle. You know who the most difficult patients to treat are? It's the ones who are completely unaware that they are sick. Do you know how many times I've been told, Doc, look at me, there's nothing wrong with me. I can't have this serious illness. Oh, it's trumped up. Doctors are always sending you to get these tests so they can make more money. No, I had this guy. You're supposed to have a hip replacement. I was like, bro, you, you, you got to go to the cardiologist and get, like, you got to get your, your, your heart checked. Oh, my cardiologist is always ordering these tests for me. Yeah, it's because your heart is bad. <laughs> Typical conversation. Okay, do you have any health problems? No, not really. Well, it says here that you take medication for high blood pressure. Oh, well, I mean, there's that. And, and low thyroid. Yeah, but I mean, that's not a health problem. And diabetes. Sure, but I feel pretty good, so I stopped taking that one. Okay, by far, the biggest one is diabetes. All right? It's a devastatingly serious disease. It can cause damage to every organ in your body, from your brain to your toes. The number one cause of blindness in America, diabetes. The number one cause of amputations in America, diabetes. A leading contributor to obesity, heart disease, kidney failure, stroke. You guessed it, diabetes. But here's the thing. Diabetes comes on without symptoms. So people don't believe it when their blood tests come back positive. Sometimes the heart attack or the stroke or the infection is the first evidence, the first symptom from the patient that they actually have a problem. But by then it's too late to prevent the damage. The patient who doesn't feel sick and doesn't believe anything is wrong, will undoubtedly be the hardest to convince to change for their own good. For the record, people, please, if the doctor asks you if you've been diagnosed with diabetes, well, they say I got that sugar diabetes, but I don't really think so. That is not an answer. It is a yes or no question. Were you diagnosed with diabetes? Yes or no. But in the same way, a lack of honesty and transparency and integrity in the things of God can develop without obvious symptoms. We may not feel or look spiritually sick. We got all the right trappings of spiritual activity and religiosity. But these patterns may already be causing serious damage in our own lives and in our community. We can become so convinced that things that look good but God calls hypocrisy, can't really be that bad. So consider the Pharisees again. And they're the religious leaders 
They've invested their entire lives to learn and memorize the Bible and to learn all these extra laws and rules and to teach people. It's a huge investment. Do you think that they believed that they were assisting Satan when they arrested Jesus? No. They thought they were protecting God's turf, defending Judaism. This is the way we've always done it. Who is this new guy trying to mess it all up? He doesn't know anything. I think that most of the religious elite of Jesus' day started out sincere, but they fell into these patterns of self-righteous living that elevated their personal efforts and reinforced their sense of personal superiority and success. Those emotions can be deceptively intoxicating. Who doesn't want to be respected by the community to get props in the street? In the immortal words of Steve Carell from The Office, season two. Would I rather be feared or loved? Both. I want them to be afraid of how much they love me. But the Pharisees are intoxicated by all the love. Forgot, they have forgotten that God is the hero of the story. They lost touch with their role in the play. And in seeking to build their own kingdoms, they are opposing and sabotaging God's kingdom. So aid the enemy they did. And guilty of opposing the Holy Spirit they were. Now we've identified two reasons to avoid hypocrisy. It is in opposition to God and God hates it. I'll say it again. God hates hypocrisy. Over and over again through the scriptures, we see what God thinks about people who make an empty religious show. The Old Testament histories, the Old Testament prophets, the New Testament gospels, and the epistles. God is angry about duplicitous and fake religion. And two, hypocrisy is like diabetes. It is killing you softly. The deaths of Ananias and Sapphira were merely an external display of an inward reality. Jesus argues repeatedly that hypocrisy is spiritually lethal. It just doesn't always kill people so dramatically. So what can we do to prevent hypocrisy, to avoid it taking root among us? How do we avoid the mistakes of Ananias and Sapphira? I can think of three suggestions. The first is to pray. The second is to preach. And the third is to partake. Pray, preach, partake. Pray. First, we must pray. We must pray for enlightenment. Listen to the words of the psalmists. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way of everlasting. This guy understands that hypocrisy can slip in. And he doesn't necessarily see it, but he wants God to find it. The next, who can discern his own error? I can't tell when I make mistakes. Declare me innocent from the hidden faults. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. And the last is from Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God. This guy understands that he's got problems. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. That is, remove my sin from me. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me. There is no air of spiritual superiority here, no empty pursuit of the praise of men, no dressing it up. Just simple, honest vulnerability for the sake of nearness to a holy God who is also a loving God. 
This must be the content of our prayers to keep us safe from hypocrisy. Trusting that God's goodness, he wants to make us better and that only he can do it. Second, we must preach. We must preach the gospel to ourselves and to one another. Remember what I said before, Ananias and Sapphira, they forgot what the gospel tells them. But it is God's grace to us that he tells us the truth about ourselves so that we can live differently in light of what he has to say. To deny the gospel is to lie to ourselves about our state, to lie to others, and to make God a liar. All have fallen short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death. That is, everyone deserves God's judgment, not just Ananias and Sapphira. That's universal truth. All God did with Ananias and Sapphira is reveal the final outcome of the path that they had chosen to take. But thank God that the gospel doesn't end there. The free gift of God is life, eternal life in Jesus Christ. And if we hold firmly to these truths, we will remember this, that no one, no one in the gospel community should expect us to be good. You shouldn't expect me to be good. I certainly don't expect you to be good because all have fallen short of God's glory and all are on the same level playing field. The gospel reminds us that there is no good in us except which comes to us by God's grace. So there's no need to fear that people would think less of you. If they believe the gospel, they can't think less of you. They should already be thinking very little of you. They should be loving Jesus Christ in you, but they should think very little of you. Seriously, though, if we could get a hold of this, it would diffuse the comparison games in the church. No need to put on airs, no need to pretend in here. Jesus himself said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Now, lest you start to feel discouraged by all this bad news and this negativity, the gospel also tells us there is real goodness in the world, but that it comes from God and that he wants to put it in you by his Holy Spirit. In fact, the scripture tells us that we partake of the divine nature, that God's spirit in us is intermingling with us, making us new, a new creation, living in a new way to be human. The change you want in your life, God can bring, but you can't find it outside of him. But only after we first abandon ourselves, acknowledging our hopelessness, our hopelessness apart from a spirit-initiated birth, now, I regularly hear people express fear about being judged by Christians. That's not just people outside the church. That's people inside the church. Christians saying, I can't be a part of the community. Or, I feel like I'm on the outside because I don't measure up. I don't look the right way. I don't speak the right way. I don't dress the right way. I don't live the right way. But if you are burdened by a fear that you don't measure up to the standard, that good Christians around you will figure out that you are a fake, let this be your official invitation into something new, a new experience of church. Every follower of Jesus in the room right now who can confess that you are deeply flawed, you've, that you have ever worried that people would reject you because of your lifestyle or mistakes you've made, or you just know that you need God's grace to make it every day, raise your hand. All right, look around you. Especially look for those people that you think are like too spiritual, too super up, up here. All right, you can put your hands down. Every follower of Jesus who could testify that the only good things in your life have come to you by the grace of God and his Holy Spirit, raise your hand. Once again, look around the room. No air of superiority. 
Every follower of Jesus who desperately, desperately wants to create a community where there is no judgment, no second string, no hierarchy, but every person is embraced by the community just as they are. And every person is loved too much to be allowed to stay as they are. Raise your hand. If you have ever hesitated to engage in community because you haven't cleaned yourself up enough yet, please look around you. Every person who raised their hand has just stated before God that they want to embrace you, they want to love you, and they want to help you live the new life that Christ has called you into. This is not a place for comparison. There is no comparison in God's family. I don't have a favorite child, and neither does God. Only this freedom, this great grace of God can propel us into the kind of community that God wants to create, authentic community. God's great grace is here now, and we can have it. Third, pray, preach, partake. Partake in the gospel community. We need gospel-saturated, gospel-fluent people in our lives to see into our deepest, darkest places and to apply the healing salve of the gospel to remind us that we don't have to perform, to remind us that the mistakes we've made do not disqualify us. We need each other to discern when we are veering from God's truth. That's why we believe that Christian life can't be lived alone. It has to be lived in community. It's a team sport. Ananias and Sapphira, they tried to exploit the gospel community for their own gain rather than nurturing it, rather than being nurtured by it. Rather than shepherding the church, they tried to manipulate the church. Let me tell you something. The church is God's prized possession. The eternal inheritance of his glorified son. It says that after Christ was obedient to death and was resurrected, that the church is the gift that God has given to him. It's his inheritance from the Father. God loves the church. We should love it too. But even if we don't, we should at least respect the church. If you disrespect my wife, I'm going to be a lot less Christian with you. Yeah, you think it's a joke. But the church is the bride of Christ. So I beseech you, respect his bride. Love his bride. Be his bride. The invitation is for all.